This past week, I completed the first half of a two-year meditation teacher training program through an organization known as Buddhist Geeks. And I finished, also finished teaching this past week a 13-week Tuesday evening class here at UUCF on practicing mindfulness. Uh, so this morning, I'd like to share with you just a little bit of what I'm coming to understand about both the practice of meditation as well as the evolving Buddhist tradition in this globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world in which we find ourselves. For any of you who have ever felt um, bewildered by meditation, like you're sitting there and you're like, I'm not really sure what's going on and if I'm doing this right, uh, please be assured I can, I can definitely relate over the years. Uh, more than 20 years ago in the late 1990s, I can still remember my first serious introduction to meditation. It was part of an assignment for a religion class in college and I, I visited a local Zen center. I was warmly welcomed, I was ushered over to a meditation cushion, and as is customary in many um, Zen traditions, you're, you're facing a, a blank white wall, so everyone's you know, kind of facing, instead of facing in, you're, you're out and facing a white wall. And I was told the meditation period will begin shortly, and indeed it did. A bell was rung, ding, and 45 minutes of silence ensued. And most of the time I was having thoughts along the lines of, all right, I'm still staring at this blank wall. Uh, I guess I'm meditating. Presumably, they'll ring that bell again eventually. I don't think we're going to be here all night. And spoiler alert, they did 45 minutes later ring that bell. And I was thanked for coming to the class. And I'm not sure I knew much more about meditation afterward than I did prior to that first visit to a Buddhist Sangha. A few years later, in the early 2000s, I started seriously exploring the Christian contemplative tradition as well. That's also a piece of my story, reading folks like Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and attending week-long retreats in uh, monasteries like the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Thomas Merton was. Some of you may know, know that name from the 20th century. For me, that particular path culminated about a decade ago when I completed a three-year program, a Diploma in the Art of Spiritual Direction from San Francisco Theological Seminary. And it was around that time in 2009 that I stumbled upon a podcast called Buddhist Geeks. It's still occasionally releasing episodes, but the archives are also there for any of you who are interested. And that's ended up being quite influential on my life. In particular, that podcast at that time introduced me to the contemporary meditation teacher, Daniel Ingram, who published a book a year earlier called uh, Mastering the Hardcore Teachings of the Buddha. It's a very long, very serious book, uh, very interesting book, I think. Uh, Ingram is a now retired emergency medical physician. He's a very intense person, right? <laughs> he, used to, he kind of brings that same ER intensity to, to the practice of of meditation. Uh, he also brings this kind of somewhat rare for the Dharma Gen X sensibility, if anybody knows what I'm, what I'm talking about, uh, compared, for example, to previous baby boomer Dharma teachers, who are also great, don't get me wrong, but Ingram represents, in his words, a generation whose radicals wore spikes and combat boots rather than beads and sandals, and who listened to the Sex Pistols rather than Moody Blues, and who wouldn't know a beat poet or an early 60s Dharma bum from a hole in the ground. 
So to me, as with many things, it's actually not a case of either or. It's a, it's a both and. We can draw from both. We don't have to make a choice between learning either from the baby boomer teachers or the Gen X teachers or anywhere in between. We can choose both in this globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world where we have a, an abundance of spiritual perspectives, more available to us than, and more accessibly than has been the case at any time in previous human history. And even a brief reflection to me makes it clear how much both I and other practitioners have benefited from meditation teachers of many different generations. I don't want to make too much of generational theory, but I do invite you to notice as I go through this quick list, just notice for those of you who are kind of meditation curious, if you've been principally reading maybe people in one cluster and you might benefit from diversifying your Dharma teachers. Uh, so, for instance, you know, the silent generation, names that spring immediately to mind that I'm incredibly grateful to, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, Pema Chodron, Sylvia Borstein, you know, all from the, the silent generation. But it's true also that they, they tend to have a little bit of a different style and presence than the more hippie-influenced cohort of the, of the baby boomers. So think about all those folks born after World War II. So folks like Jack Kornfield, Lama Suryadas, Sharon Salzberg, Tara Brock, Stephen Batchelor. But for some, quite some time, however, we've also been seeing these Gen X teachers come onto the scene, born in the early 60s through the early 80s. So folks like Ajashanti. Uh, you know, really powerful Dharma teacher, uh, Ethan Nickturn, again, Daniel Ingram that I mentioned earlier. And my own most influential teachers have actually been elder millennials, if you will, uh, folks like Vince fucking Barry Thorne, um, uh, Emily Westhorn. And in future years, I'll be interested to see the ways that Gen Z, the emerging Gen, Gen Alpha, will help further evolve the Dharma. And it's less about knowing those names and, again, just noticing where your influences may have been. As we explored previously in regard to many world religions, there has never been one singular Buddhism. Rather, there have always already been Buddhisms, plural, just as there have always already been diverse and multiple and complex Hinduisms and Judaisms and Christianities and Islams and more. And going back to even the earliest days, we see that there were somewhere between 18 to 20 early schools of Buddhism you know, competing over how do we do this thing well. Some of it was what I sometimes think of as the narcissism of small differences. You know, like how different were these schools? But some of them were pretty, pretty major differences. And the permutations of the Dharma have only expanded exponentially over time. In this country today, I also think it's important to keep in mind that you only have about 1% or so of the U.S. population who actually identify as Buddhist. Now, you have more if you start talking about who's meditation curious, you get a way bigger number. But of the 1% that actually say they're Buddhist, I think it's important to recognize that of that one or so percent, 67 to 69 of that 1% are Asian American. Uh, Chen Zing Hong has written a really interesting, important recent book called Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists. And she notes a number of things in there, but including that white Buddhist teachers have been vastly overrepresented in the media and Asian teachers vastly underrepresented. And you're starting to see some of that change with increasing attention being paid to Dharma teachers of color. So kind of all the stuff that we could say about like widening the circle of concern and diversity, equity, inclusion, and Unitarian Universalism and everywhere else, that's all true as well, not surprisingly, uh, with um, Buddhist sanghas or meditation centers. 
And if we had a lot more time, we could explore all the various turnings of the wheel of the Dharma over the past 2,500 years since Siddhartha Gautama first sat under that Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, India, and said, I'm going to sit here until I wake up. Uh, but I really want to go ahead and skip us ahead to the um, last century or so. Um, though I will say one quick caveat, that the, the deeper and deeper I'm going into the Buddhist tradition, into meditation, the tricky thing is, as many of you can think of in the areas in which you have various expertises, the more I learn, the more I'm just aware of how much more I don't know. <laughs> that's, the, that's the tricky thing. I know more and more, and I'm more and more aware of how much more I don't know. And I don't want to get too nerdy with all of this, so I will just say a brief word about the intersection of ancient, the ancient Buddhist tradition with, the, with modernity and with post-modernity. I just want to briefly address that, because it's actually really important. At the risk of oversimplification, modernity started around the 1600s with the age of enlightenment and was characterized by this growing hope in science and reason and continual progress. Things are just going to keep getting better and better and better and there are no downsides and just a total denial of anything having a shadow or any you know, negative consequences. But, as, uh, but many modernist hopes in this perpetual, inevitable progress of humankind really crashed on the rocks of the First and Second World Wars. That was kind of the real transition from modernity into what we now think of as the postmodern world. And postmodernity emerged with this, I mean, the, the simplest definition of postmodernism, which is probably frustratingly academic, is an incredulity to meta-narratives. So it just means being incredulous, being skeptical of these grand sweeping claims that modernism was very comfortable with. Postmodernism has this, it's just much more interested in diversity. It's much more interested in difference instead of universal claims. It's much more interested in contingency and how just random historical events can swing things. It's much more ironic. It's a much more ironic relationship to history. And looking back, we can see these clear ways that modernism mixed with the ancient Buddhist tradition it, with science and romanticism and liberal Protestantism and individuality and democracy and pluralism and privileging meditation over ritual. Uh, so all of those, there's, we could spend a lot of time unpacking all of that stuff. And in turn, postmodern Buddhism has become even more diverse, even more globalized, even more different open to drawing from this full, vast range of what the world has to offer yesterday and today. All that's important, but it's at the level of theory. So what I, I wanted to just sketch that out briefly and then turn to a few pieces of practical advice that have become really clear to me, but they were not, maybe they were, these are already obvious to you, they were not obvious to me when I first began getting involved in meditation and Buddhism. First, meditation is not this unalloyed good that leads only to greater good and compassion and kindness in the world. Um, although it can definitely help cultivate all of those things, it can also, multiple things can happen. It can be watered down, it can be co-opted for all sorts of questionable aims, what's sometimes called mindfulness. You know that, let me say it this way, I don't really think the Buddha's goal was to give modern workers just enough mindfulness to be better cogs in the capitalist machine. Let me just say it that way. Uh, 
At the same time, I don't want to pretend that Buddhism had this original purity that's been corrupted. It's just a lot messier and more complicated than that. Just to briefly give you an example, it's just really clear from history that the Buddha himself advised kings, advised Brahmins, member of that, you know, that, that top class uh, caste system. It was King Ashoka who spread the Dharma throughout India instead of it just being limited to Bogaya. In China and Japan, Buddhism was adopted by elites first before it spread to the broader culture. Seminal figures like the Buddha, Nagarjuna, Shantideva, and Dogen, those were, all, those were all aristocrats. They were all members of noble classes by birth and often taught and advised other members of their classes. It's also really important to know that Buddhism, it just has all the same problems that every other movement filled by human beings does, <laughs> would be the simplest way of saying it. In particular, it can be valuable to be forewarned because some pe so many people have stumbled over this. It's actually all a lot better and better and more accountable today, but in particular, there's a tremendous history of sex scandals in, in modern Western Buddhism in particular, as well as in Asian Buddhism from teachers sleeping with their students. I'm not gonna actually take the time to name names here, but if you want to know the name names, there's a book by a scholar named Anne Glegg called American Dharma. Just read the sex chapter in that book. So if you want all the, the dirty details, they're there. The real point here is just to beware of any meditation teacher, any one in general, who pretends to be perfect and who is not transparent about their flaws, their difficulties, their humanities. You know, enlightenment, awakening, it's all a really good thing. It does not make you perfect. And anyone that tells you is selling you snake oil. Uh, again, we don't have time to fully unpack that, but it can sometimes seem confusion, confusing of how is it possible that the same human being can be this powerful teacher of authentic spiritual wisdom and also like embezzle, sleep with their students, da 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 all these ethical infractions. How can both those things be true? But it turns out, to quote the religion scholar Jeffrey Kripal, who spent a lot of time thinking about this, he's at Rice University, he said very clearly, and I think he's right about this, there is no necessary or simple connection between the mystical and the ethical. There is no necessary or simple co connection between the mystical and the ethical. Again, a lot to unpack about that statement, but the short of it is that ethics and morality in so many ways are historically contingent. They're just culturally bound. And if you go around the world, you'll see ethics differ quite radically from culture to culture. And that's why often mystical experiences explode and transgress traditional values. Like there's just, again, no necessary and simple connection between the mystical and the ethical. I mean, think about that Rumi quote, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. The philosopher Ken Wilber helpfully frames this dynamic in terms of what he calls the level line fallacy, the level line fallacy. Imagine, if you will, with me a graph that just has multiple vertical parallel lines, right? So non-intersecting, just vertical line, vertical line, vertical line. And they're labeled things like kinesthetic, cognitive, moral, emotional, spiritual, aesthetic. And so what we're graphing here is how developed is someone kinesthetically, cognitively, morally, emotionally, spiritually, aesthetically, and more. And here's the thing, they're parallel lines. I promise you, if you look out closely at the world today, someone can be like a 10 at any one of those and like a one or two at any of the other ones. Like it's just, it just, they're not correlated to each other. And that includes spiritual. And that's the thing that people get wrong again and again 
and get in problematic relationships with spiritual teachers. So let me give you a few examples. So think about like an NFL player. They're like, how could that NFL player possibly commit domestic violence? He's so good at football. You can be a kinesthetic genius and an emotional infant. You can be a spiritual genius and an ethical infant. I mean, I'm just, it's just true. I don't like it, I wish it were different, but it's just the way it is. You can be a Nobel Prize winning scientist and really clumsy. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just these things are not, these lines of development are just not correlated. So there's a lot to say about all that. Uh, so in this globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world in which we find ourselves, we just need to be aware that there are, um, there's just a tremendous opportunity for, and well, I'll say it this way, what I'm most drawn to is pragmatic dharma. This isn't the only way of doing dharma, but what I'm really drawn to is what works. I want to draw deeply from the ancient tradition if that's helpful, and I want permission to let go and loosen around what no longer serves us. We have this real ability today, I think, to do, again, to quote Ken Wilber, how can we transcend and include? I think that's a really interesting call for us as you use, not transcend and exclude, because I think that's the, the real temptation to, to have realizations and insights and say, oh, look at all those dummies who hadn't gotten it yet. Now, how do we transcend and include and really, really try to integrate all that there is to do? So the final piece I want to do today is that um, you know, some of you may be interested in going really, really deeply in, into meditation. I would be glad to have that conversation with you. But for anybody that showed up this morning that's just a little bit meditation curious, let me answer the question for you that I sometimes get. What is the least amount of meditation I can do and still get benefit? <laughs> let me end with that. Uh, there's a lot of research being done in this area, so there's going to be more information on this forthcoming. But th there are some really interesting recent studies that say the answer to that question is as little as 12 minutes a day. Um, and so that being said, uh, I also like to emphasize that just one breath can make a difference. Because I know we're in a hard time right now, and even 12 minutes may not seem possible. And if so, fair enough. And that's when I like to emphasize kind of like uh, Catherine was in the spoken meditation. Just one breath can shift the remote control in your mind. It's like picking up the remote control on yourself and changing the channel. Like just one deep breath. It may not change everything, but it really can incline you. Just putting your hand on your heart and your gut, just offering yourself that kind of heartfulness touch, that can make a real difference and can begin to shift things. Just one breath or just that switch. I often introduce students early on in meditation classes to the formulation, there is blank. Instead of saying, I am, for example, like I am anxious, just trying saying, there is anxiety. Just noting, that's one among the things, it just makes it a little more workable. So there really are these things that just these little, you know, we're asking yourself, I often, I love yoga and I often don't have time to do a full yoga practice, so I'll just ask myself, what one or two yoga moves do I most need in this moment? Just do that. That's so much better than nothing. Y'all know, know that the yoga phrase about uh, saying that you're too stiff to do yoga is like saying you're too cold to get out of the freezer? You know, like it's a similar thing around, around this kind of stuff. But for now, about all of this, don't just believe me. Test it in your own direct experience. And we're going to have a chance to, to try that right now in real time with our next song.
So as Bill and Lisa sing, um, filled with loving kindness, notice that they're going to sing it through three times. They're going to start with the personal pronoun I. And see if you can wish this for yourself, these words of loving kindness that they're going to say. Just right now in real time, see if you can open your mind and your heart and your body to that. And then they're going to switch it to you. And as they sing that second verse, who does that you need to be for you today? You know, you know, who's the you in your life right now that you need to be sending loving kindness to? It could be somebody your heart is breaking for. It could be somebody that your heart is closing to. So who is that you for you as they bring them to mind as Bill and Lisa? I, and then you, and then we, for all sentient beings. So you see if you can open your heart to that.